Welcome to the IABC Amina podcast. This is Monique Zidnick. Looking at inclusion, today's episode focuses on gender and in particular women and our communications profession. It is taken from a lively webinar that we had on inclusion on the 29th of October 2020 and apologies for the slightly glitchy sound due to recording through Zoom, but I am sure that you'll agree that the content makes it worth your while. The discussion is facilitated by Gloria Walker, IABC board member, experienced communications professional and university lecturer. Gloria's first guest, Anne-Marie, is an inspirational woman who is on the international board of the IABC and has a wealth of experience leading communicators and advising leaders in the world's largest financial services organisations. She is currently based in London. Anne-Marie talks with us about how she used to focus on blending in and how she's discovered that inclusion is about being yourself and bringing your whole self to work with a seat at the table and access. I particularly like her explanation of PI, which is an acronym for what matters as we get higher up the corporate ladder and what she personally worked on to get where she is. Our next panellist, Alex Malouf, is also a former IABC Amina board member. He's a marketing communications executive who has spent the last 17 years in the Middle East. Alex is the corporate communications director for the Middle East and Africa at Schneider Electric and in his previous corporate communications role at Procter & Gamble, he was responsible for diversity and inclusion and brings a lot to the table. Alex talks about the need for us as communicators to mirror our broader community and the need for us to tackle biases. He discusses the three C's, so keep your ears out for this. Dr. Anna Ardi from Quadriga University of Applied Sciences in Berlin is our third panellist and a professor of public relations and corporate communications. She is the chair of the Digital Communications Award, host of the Women in PR podcast and co-editor of the Women in PR ebook. Anna talks about the need to be inclusive and to, to be diverse and the need to recognise the hurdles we put in place for ourselves and for others. She talks about the hot topics of pay, the perception of communications as a profession, and the need for quotas for all genders. Our panellists talk about everything from the need to just openly discuss money, structural barriers, our responsibilities as communicators, and where we should go to tackle these issues as a profession. We hope you enjoy listening to Anne-Marie, Alex and Anna's personal experiences and perspectives hosted by the wonderful Gloria Walker. Anne-Marie, Alex, Anna, well, we have the A-team here. Can you each share with us what inclusion means to you and why it is so important right now? Anne-Marie? Hi. Well, hi. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, I've kind of been kind of reflecting on this question over the last kind of day or so, because obviously inclusion, you can Google it and, and find out what inclusion means. But as a kind of black woman with an underlying health condition, I, I've always ticked a lot of boxes and I've always felt that I'm actually different. And, you know, the way that I've got around that is by blending in. So, you know, when you work in financial services, particularly investment banking, it's typically kind of, you know, white, middle, you know, middle-aged, middle, you know, upper-class, middle-class kind of men. So, you know, the way that you get on is by blending and being like, um, so kind of recently I've been reflecting, well, 
that that probably wasn't the right thing to do because it, you know if we're really serious about inclusion it's about allowing people to be bring their whole selves to work and to be you know to be themselves and um you know kind of have that seat at the table and kind of have access to those spaces and I think you know more recently I have kind of been thinking about that in a way that you know even though I have been different I haven't really thought about it before. Okay Alex what's your perspective? Uh, look it, it's a very big issue um, for, for me it, it's a very very simple you know I when I when I work with organizations um, especially the organizations that I, that I am in what I say is that we internally need to mirror our stakeholders outside to so the wider community. We, we can't be a specific gender majority. We, we should not be a specific cultural majority. We, we need, again, to reflect the outside world. So, you know, you look at race, if you look at gender, you can look at religion, you can look at culture, you can look at uh, languages as well. That, that's another big one, which is often um, seen or overlooked. Um, you can look at age is another one, which is often not discussed that much, but that really is diversity and inclusion. You know, So what are we doing as entities, as communicators to try and reflect that plurality we see outside of our four walls internally so that we essentially are a mirror of what we see outside. Okay, very interesting. Anna, what's your perspective? Oh, like, like Anne-Marie, I've been uh, trying to think, you know, long and hard. Um, to me, they have to go hand in hand. And in a sense, it feels to me that you need to be inclusive first to, to be diverse. It's, it's, a, it's an issue for me, you know, when you look at opportunity and access, and in order to have, to give opportunity and access or to have opportunity and access, I think even before that, we need to think about recognizing what hurdles we are putting in place for ourselves and others. So this sense, before we talk about opportunity and access, if we want to have a place that is inclusive of everyone, I think we need to think long and hard about how does the world around us looks like and what do we take for granted? So in this sense, it's, it's a lot of reflection uh, and inner reflection, but also a, a lot of debate and discussion about what we've inherited as either social stereotypes, uh, workplace stereotypes. And, and then, you know, through this process of reflection, try to think of what do we want to change? So it, maybe it's not the clearest of answers. I think there are a lot of things that are related to one another. Alex pointed out uh, fantastic, uh, gave fantastic examples of how diversity, what are categories of diversity that we can think of. But I think in order for our workplaces to, to have that, we need to start thinking of people around us with respect. And we need to think um, of people around us in terms of different ability if you want. So something, and then consider how do we, how do we include that? How do we bring that? How do we provide that access? Okay, I think I those views should get us off to a good start for today's discussion. And I do want to remind everyone, if you want to ask a question, it's uh, very easy. Just go to uh, Twitter and use the hashtag IABC underscore inclusion and we will try to answer as many of your questions as we can work into today's discussion. So my first question today is for Anne-Marie. 
The recent Women in Work study found that one of the biggest barriers for women is getting onto the first rung of the management ladder. Now you have had a very successful career. So what have been your experiences in advancing into management roles? So the first thing I would say, Gloria, is that it was really difficult. So I am where I am now um, because, um, you know, an ex-boss of mine actually told me what I, I now think is um, something that she could have told me many, many years ago and, and it would have helped me progress a little bit quicker. But I was always brought up to say, to, to understand that if you worked hard, then success would follow. So that has always been kind of my mantra going into the workplace. So if you think I've worked in financial services for the first few years, I was absolutely flying. So, you know, worked hard and then, you know, you, you were compensated appropriately and then you were promoted to the next level. And then when I got to the level that was just before management, I got stuck and I couldn't figure out why I was getting stuck. So I was performing really well. Uh, people were coming to me. I was reliable in terms of getting my work done. I was always going the extra mile, you know, my, obviously working in financial services bonuses kind of were often a measure of kind of whether you were doing a good job or not. And I just wasn't progressing to the next level. And I have to say, I was finding that most frustrating. Um, I was looking around me and I was thinking to myself, why am I not getting on? You know, that incompetent person is getting on or that person that's not as good as me is getting on. I just really don't understand it. And I guess that had a bit of a negative impact on on me in a couple of ways because actually when you get frustrated about things people say say you can kind of see it on my face so you know I started to become demotivated and not very happy and uh, obviously some of the language that goes around females in the workplace isn't particularly you know helpful either so you know some of the the traits that that you know kind of a male may be able to kind of demonstrate are not um, actually tolerated within the woman. And anyway, um, someone that, that I kind of, uh, she was a boss, but she's a, a very good friend of mine now. Um, and she came from a company called GE. And she said to me, do you know what, Anne-Marie? She said, she said, have I ever sat down and talked to you about Pi? And actually, I talked to, about Pi to kind of all of the people that I mentor now. So Pi, um, I think we've adapted it a bit from the, the, from the GE model, but it stands for Performance, Image and Executive Sponsorship or exposure, I think it stands for in, in, in the GE model. Um, so what, what she actually taught me was that when you're in the more junior grades, performance is actually how you progress because actually you need to be competent in the job that you are doing to kind of progress through the kind of early ranks. And therefore it becomes a high percentage of what you do. But when you become management, performance is... Um, I think I, I used this phrase previously, it's it's actually table stakes. So it's expected that you should be able to perform at a competent level. So if you think of it as an actual pie, performance only makes up 10% of how you progress to the next, next level. So, you know, one of the things that people take into uh, consideration. So what I was doing is, you know, 100%, you know, focusing on my performance and ignoring um, image and executive sponsorship. So image is how other people see you. So are you seen as helpful? Are you seen as kind of taking credit for other people's work? Are, you know, literally how people see you. And I think that if you don't work on your own image, then other people are setting that image for you. So obviously, you know, I'm a, a black female, um, sometimes black females can be, I don't usually talk about myself in those terms, but anyway, um, they can be seen as uh, aggressive, 
as opposed to assertive or having kind of a chip on the shoulder if if calling out bad behaviors. So I had to work really, really hard to not display those things um, and actually have the image that I wanted to kind of portray to get to that next level. And one of the things that I talk about that actually makes people laugh is that I don't do tea. I don't do tea. So if I'm at a meeting, I'm there at a meeting because of my kind of professional experience and acumen. I'm not there to pour the tea. And one of the things that, you know, because I, I had I had done it, you know, go to a meeting, I'm a helpful person, you know, would anyone want the tea? Because actually people, do, you know, would see me as kind of, you know, the person, person that got the tea and that's not what I wanted to do. So, you know, that's kind of one of the things that I decided not to do because there are kind of some, some kind of stereotypes that, that kind of come along with being a female and you know I remember Paulette I will, I will name my ex-boss and I uh, went we used to travel a lot for our work and um, we would travel with our male executive assistant and people would always address him and, and we found it quite <laughs> we found it quite hilarious that you know you know they're talking to Andy again or they're giving Andy the upgrade or they you know thinking he's the one with the budget or you know the, the kind of the circumstance where I was about to, well I, I had come back from maternity and I went to Germany I think it was uh, and someone said to me well who's looking after your baby I'm like well I've left her in a drawer at home and kind of just carried on <laughs> with my business because, you know, some of those some of those things you kind of just, just have to, to to laugh off. So, you know, work, working really hard on my image. And then um, and then um, executive sponsorship or, or exposure. So that's other people saying good things about you is kind of something that I've had to work on. And, and the way you do that really is around networking. So I don't play golf, uh, obviously, um, that's quite a good way to get on. But I've had to kind of find other ways to, you know, kind of really, you know, get my exposure and, and take the credit for the work I've done. So that, that's kind of broadly how I did it. And actually, I wish I'd have known that earlier, because I probably would have progressed uh, a lot quicker. Right. Very interesting. If we move ahead, Alex, we all know, and I think it's widely recognized now that gender equality is not just an issue for, for women, but for men as well. So what have you seen over your career? What's your perspective on that? It's, it's an interesting um, question to ask. I've, I'd say that is very much the case in Europe and in certain geographies. I think still the issue of women being given equal opportunities is, in at least where I am, is, is still seen as, as a female issue when it's, you know, gender equality really should be for, for both sexes. It's not one or the other. Um, we both have a role to play, but you know, pretty much every time I go to an event on gender equality, I seem to be like the, you know, the, the male representation that there's nobody else. Um, and we, you know, I, I've been in meetings with, with senior government officials in the region and, you know, they, they, they keep saying that we don't have an issue in terms of gender equality. You know, we, we seem to be doing a good job. And, it, you know, you can think one thing, but then the facts say something else. Yeah. When, you, when you look at leadership, when you look at senior roles, and they're predominantly men. And even when you, you know, when you go down the ladder, you, see, you can see the challenges because when you look at a lot of organizations, the, the intake is often 50-50. But then because of, you know, because of, of family, because of community, because of other reasons, the women drop off the, the career ladder. It's, it's something which I think we, we all need to, to recognize, um, all of us um, everywhere, because it, it's still an issue that we all face. Um, 
Now, there are certain countries, certain regions, which have done a lot of work um, in terms of ensuring that there is representation across the board and, and from top to bottom, bottom to top. You know, you look at regions, say, like, uh, like Iceland, but otherwise, as, as a, you know, as um, not just any business, but also government, we've got to do much more work when it comes to ensuring that everybody has equal opportunities in terms of the workplace, in terms of their career as well. Um, and, you know, th- there's a couple of areas that need to be called out. So one is obviously career in the workplace. Employers need to do more when it comes to tackling um, bias, you know, either being bias can be either overt or it could be um, unconscious, but we, we need to, to do more on both. So we need to look at proactively hiring and bringing in more women, especially in, in industries where you know, there are a lot of uh, women coming up in terms of graduates, in terms of potential talent. For example, if you look at STEM industries, but, but they're not given the chance to either join the industry or progress. You know, tech is a great example. Mm-hmm. Tech is, is very much skewed towards men. So uh, we've got to look at it from an industry perspective. In terms of organizations, we've got to look at policies which are female-friendly. So, you know, women, it's, it's granted. You know, pregnancy, women will take, obviously, time out after, after, during and after pregnancy. You know, it's something which men don't have to deal with. Organizations then need to think, okay, what can we do here? You know, can we put in flexible working policies? Can we help them when they come back? Can we ensure that there is no uh, implication for them having having a family, having children? Because even if there's no, you know, if it's not called out overtly, there is again a subconscious bias from both men and women. It's not one or the other. I've I, you know I've had family members who have had challenges going back into work after having a child, and it, it hasn't been overt because that would be against company policy, but there has been you know, a subtle bias against them. You know, you've taken time out. Um, you've got to essentially try and make it up. So that that's one thing which we've got to look at. What are we doing in terms of organizations? How are we trying to ensure that women have the same opportunities and, and that biases are tackled? And that they're helped, you know, because a lot of women don't want to drop out. They, they want to keep working. They want to have a career. They should have the opportunity, just like everybody else, like like other other people do, like men do. And then there is the issue of community. So, you know, what does the community say about women in certain roles? And we have to be um, much more supportive here. You know, we we need to find and we need to promote more positive role models, more mentoring. Um, we we need to to show younger women that they can have a career, they can have a family, they don't have to make a choice and Communities need to be supportive of that. So that that's the what I call the, the second C. Um, and then the, the third C is, um, you know, your companion. So basically, what are your family doing to help out here? Mm-hmm. And often in, in certain countries and certain regions, this has the most impact. You know, so does your partner want you, for example, to continue working after after childbirth? It may actually not even be something after childbirth. It could just simply be after graduation. What do they want to do? How can they support you in this? And that's something which is much harder to work on. But again, you know, I, I always say this, look, it's a partnership and, and husbands need to support their wives and they need to be understanding that, you know, again, that their wife um, will have exactly the same career aspirations possibly that they would, you know. So we, we need to be supportive here. We need to help out. You know, I, I love... It sounds a bit strange to me being in the Middle East, but I love to see, you know, even people thinking a little bit differently, you know, more, more, for example, more fathers staying at home 
um, and looking after children. This is a long way off in, in, in the Middle East, but you know, it's happening in other regions. You know, you look at places like Scandinavia, this is happening. So, you know, w- we've got to take a different approach here and we've got to understand in brief that if we want gender equality, it's, it's an issue which men and women have to play a part in. It's an issue which organizations, which employers have to take an active role in and as well as communities and, and family units. You know, we, we, we all have a role to play in terms of making the situation much fairer for women around the world. All right, very interesting. I think lots of insightful comments there and we'll be coming back to, uh, to you for some further discussion a bit later. So thanks, Alex. Turning to uh, Anna, you've been focusing on women in PR, both in your podcast and more recently with your ebook women in PR. So from your perspective, what are the hot topics right now? What are people talking about on this issue? Well, I think um, hot topics are so hot that they've been, because they've been here for so long and uh, they're still unaddressed or we've budged very little in in terms of of progress. so it starts from um, something that you pointed out right right at the beginning of our of our conversation. Uh, it starts with the feminization of the profession. And <laughs> I gave a talk recently here in Germany, and somebody came to me and was quite offended because she said that sounds to me like a swear word. And I was like, well, okay, it's not. <laughs> uh, it wasn't meant to be. It's uh, it's a phenomenon that we describe uh, through through the sex lens the, uh, um, and the predominant existence of, of women in, in a profession. And public relations, in a sense, started to be feminized in the 80s when, when the balance kind of uh, was tipped. And that meant that from the 80s onwards, there were more women in public relations. Now, the result of that, every, every job that is feminized ends up being associated with, with a woman's job. And because it's associated with a woman's job, it brings a slew of negative effects. Uh, it's valued less. It's considered mm-hmm. that it's less complex. It's paid less. Somebody, uh, Claire, I think, asked a question about uh, pay gap. And that also means it's paid less because Alex mentioned maternity leave. So these career progressions, uh, career paths, in a sense, that are non-linear. And, and then we're also having, if, if, a, if a job is perceived as a woman's job, what also happens is that men deliberately start shying away. So start avoiding uh, the profession. And we see that most of the universities offering undergraduate degrees in public relations in particular, they have a very disproportionate uh, representation of males and females undertaking these courses. It's great to see uh, Carol joining us from, uh, from Argentina. Um, she and her colleague, Luz Canella, uh, they've uh, looked at the glass ceiling and pay gap in, in Argentina for our Women in PR book. And that's something that they kind of noticed happening in Argentina. Like 90% of, of uh, the students and PR degrees tend to be women. Yet, if you look at the workforce and if you look then at top management, uh, they're men. And so there's question in a sense of, well, how does that happen? Several things just to, to answer. So hot topics, of course, feminization brings men shying away from the profession. 
they would rather do anything else but a woman's job. It brings inequality or perpetuates inequality when it comes to pay and therefore kind of stunts career progressions because women's work is, is perceived as less valuable and a non-linear full-time career progression is also not valued. So instead of mm -hmm. saying, look, we're going to promote into positions of leadership someone in a part-time position or flexible work, or even will make this position shared, we'll just prefer to value someone who's been there, because um, Anne-Marie was mentioning, right, performance. We, we just prefer to have someone who's been seen there at Mark, hundred percent, not necessarily being, you know, the the best and uh, most, yeah, having the the most impact. So um, I think these are kind of the hot topics. But what is very unfortunate is that these 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 topics have been discussed over and over again in public relations literature. They kind of come back like hiccups. Mm -hmm. Every, mm -hmm. every 10, 15 years or so, somebody else kind of rises up and gets uh, annoyed and offended and, and <laughs> aggravated, uh, like me. Yeah, but we're probably coming of age in, in a sense and kind of realizing and had enough of this. <laughs> Something's got to give. And then uh, you see a flurry of academic publications and, and discussions. And, and then, and uh, gender quotas have been uh, proven to work and that would work the other way around. So if, you know, there, there are too few men, for instance, because we were talking about diversity and inclusion, if there's too few men in, in, a, in a department, <laughs> kind of imposing to have men in uh, might, might be the way to understand what, what differences are and how you, how you deal with that. And then it goes out of public relations. All these discussions about pay gap and career progression, they go out of the profession in a sense of trying to think out how do we deal with what we perceive as work, what we perceive as valuable work, and how does that look into the service-based economy and co-created, co-shared and all that. Um, thanks, Anna. I have a couple of questions from the audience uh, that I'd like to bring in now. And we've touched on these a little bit, but I think we can... Um, dive a little bit deeper. We've had a question from Claire Parsons, who has asked, why is there a gender pay gap? And I think you've touched on some of the, the underlying reasons for that, Anna. Uh, but why do we accept this? And should there be an ethnicity pay gap report as well? So, uh, Anne-Marie, what's your view on that? So I guess, uh, hi Claire, nice to see you here. Um, so I guess the answer to why there, there's still a gap, I guess because um, it's still the same decision makers that are in charge, you know, kind of would be one response to it. And I, I always, uh, it was only when I started working for myself uh, or going into contracting that I got a bit open about talking about money because I think sometimes it's, it's a bit cloaked in secrecy and therefore if you don't know what other people earn, how, how do you know? How do you know that there's a gap? So I, I think I'm a little bit more kind of open about um, talking about money now. The ethnic pay gap is an interesting one because I am part of REAP and we're going to be publishing our report on Monday. Um, but I would mm -hmm. say that, you know, there's still a gap because it's still hard. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's put in the difficult box. And if it's in the difficult box, we can put it off till tomorrow to actually doing things that we need to do. But uh, I, I think kind of being more open about it, you know, changing maybe some of the decision makers and, you know, taking it out of the difficult box would kind of go some way to improving some of this. And Alex, what's your perspective? So there, there is a pay gap because the men are mainly in charge still. Um, and, you know, I'll be, I'll be straight up about it. You know, if you, if you look at 
a situation in, in most parts of the world, you know, who, who creates the legal frameworks? It's men. Um, you know, who looks at decision-making in most organizations? It's, it's men. And if you look at where I am, you know, it's, it's very much that, that sentiment that, that women are in charge of the home. They raise the children. So, for example, if you look at the difference, if you look at male and female um, wages, they, the man will get, say, the housing allowance. He will get other, and, uh, get other additions as well. Um, and his basic may also be higher. Now, what I've seen some very progressive societies to, to you know, do, like Iceland, I believe in the UK, um, I, I think very much if we're going to tackle the issue of pay gap, we've got to first look at transparency. Companies need to come out and they need to clearly say basically what is happening and, and why, um, who has paid what, and, and really just tackle, tackle these issues and, and clearly state what is the reasoning uh, for these differences, because you know, as soon as we have transparency, that's when we are going to see people being questioned mm-hmm. as to the reasons why things are done the way they are. And until we have those questions being asked, we're really not going to see any change. So transparency, information sharing, uh, looking at different industries, looking at how um, you know men and women are paid, looking at their different levels as well. Um, and looking as well about the number of men and women at different levels. And all of these things have to come into play. And that's where we begin. Okay. And Anna? I've got to make, yeah, sorry, yeah. Gloria, I, I'm just yeah. going to come in with a real example about, that, about how these things can happen. So it was a while ago, I was, I was going on maternity leave. And the guy that was coming in to cover my maternity leave, and he happened to mention that he'd asked for an uplift to do my maternity lift. And that uplift would have taken him above what I was being paid, a grade higher <laughs> than him. Um, no one seemed to notice or think that there was anything wrong with that. I don't think that they joined the dots about kind of what exactly that they were doing until it was pointed out to them. So, yes, transparent. Interesting, interesting. Anna? Well, um, I've, I've noticed a couple of things here um, because Claire's question was not only why is, there a ga- uh, why is there a pay gap, but rather why do we accept this? And I think it's not necessarily that we accept it. Again, I think, Alex, you've, um, it's, it's great. It has to do with transparency. I think it also needs to be enforced at a policy level. So uh, you've suggested voluntary, voluntary publication, but I think it needs to, to come to policy level. In, in Germany, for instance, the policy is, is such that you could ask to see your colleagues' salaries. Um, so it doesn't go to the level of transparency of shouting everybody's salary and here's how, you know, John, Mary, Amy, whatever they earn, but rather you can go and ask HR and compare. And tell you what, in academia, you know, academia and PR, they tend to have similar issues when it comes to, to gender. So make it at policy level and have it enforced. But there are other behaviors, I think, that we need to keep into account. The CIPR, um, there's, a, there's a report that CIPR has launched recently. One of the things that they kind of indicate is that women tend to be rubbish at negotiating. Mm-hmm. And that has, has to do with upbringing. So we're talking about social acculturation in, in a sense. 
women are are told girls are told to be more modest to mm, not not to not, not to sing their praises because that's ungirly you know not, not inappropriate and and so that leads to to a variety of effects there's been another study that linkedin published recently saying that women would apply for the job if they're 100% confident that they can tick the boxes whereas men would go for 60%. So this kind of goes, you know, upbringing versus what we're, what we're saying. So negotiation skills, confidence. One of the other thing is, because Alex, you mentioned pregnancy. The fact that women do take maternity leave and maternity leave is regulated very differently throughout Europe. Germany, I think, and we have someone from Sweden. Germany, I think, is on kind of the top. Um, where where you can take off time and uh, quite the with quite a high pay, but that the the return to work it, it turns to be difficult. So mm -hmm. the career progressions of women, and there's also a, a chapter that was was written by uh, Talia Beckett Davis. She she writes for women in PR. Uh, she has this sort of group in Canada and and America, and their research kind of indicated that motherhood is a showstopper and, and is, is kind of the, the thing that drives this career gap and widens it uh, incredibly because most women after becoming mothers would be forced in, in a way, whether it's socially, whether it's economically, will be forced into part-time or flexible work. And, and as, we've, as I've mentioned that before, that is valued less financially so that means that pay gap and career progression that grows significantly. And unfortunately for most women, that happens exactly at the time when you, your career could, could grow about end of 20s, 40s, maybe mid 40s. So that is when, when that career, um, so that pay gap gets instituted. Negotiation skills is something that maybe we need to learn and confidence, confidence comes with role models but also comes with more presence of women. And there's, a, I will just mention just another study. There's research from the psych, on, on the psychology of gender in a sense and representation of gender. And it kind of indicates that when the women's status uh, is perceived as precarious, then women become overly competitive against their own gender. So with one another, right? And we have these stereotypes, Anne-Marie, you talked about, yeah? it's. A, is aggressive versus assertive, is bitchy versus, I don't know, uh, argumentative, all, all these words that I can think of. But however, what turns to be a, a game changer is that when there are more women in, or, or there's more gender balance in, in a department, then everybody's more supportive and they're more collaborative. So a variety of things, yes, lack of transparency, uh, make a make the possibility of checking salaries, but do account for variable um, career paths. And the other thing has to do with how we recruit. Americans, for instance, like to kind of wipe out everything that could identify you. It's kind of like a blind audition for an orchestra. I wonder if we could have blind auditions for PR. We'll see how that, okay. that's going to go. So why do we accept this? I don't think we accept it anymore, but... There are a lot, it's, it's still an uphill battle. It, however, compared to a couple of generations ago, and even a couple of years ago, there's more awareness of this, uh, and there seems to be more determination to do something to change this. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, we've got Sorry, can I just, add, yeah, can I just I add one thing in as well? Um, sure. 
and when this was this was what, a couple of years back, I think during the last recession, when I was speaking to a senior HR leader in, in a fairly big multinational, and she was saying that one of the the challenges that women also face in in many workplaces is that women often will say yes, and they will you know somebody will come to them, they will say, I will take on this additional task. And what happens is women are seen as as not being right or wrong. They're seen as not being sort of subject matter experts, you know, with with a deep focus in a certain area, unlike, say, with, with men. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to, you know, a difficult period, say a, uh, a recession, the HR teams will often look at those subject matter experts, those people who are, say, leaders or experts, whatever you want to call them, um, and they are the ones who will often remain in place, mm-hmm. whereas they're often the, the men. And women, they are, are not seen as these sort of the, with the same level of expertise or depth, and they will be more likely asked to leave. This, this, is, an, this is an implicit bias. This is a, sort of a, an incorrect understanding and reading the situation, but it also impacts the, the organization um, uh, much more dramatically because often they, the women, uh, the, the glue of the organization, they're, they're the people who informally know what's happening in different parts of the organization. So I think a lot of that bias, again, is, is comes back to that perception mm-hmm. um, of how men and women are seen in the workplace. And th- this was a very big multinational U.S., very progressive in terms of diversity inclusion. And even they were, were not picking this up. So you know, there are still a lot of challenges when it comes to that that notion of perception and the differences between how women and men are perceived in the workplace. Okay. This comes from Sua. And she says, in order to tackle underlying biases, some of the things you've been talking about, and the exclusion of women and minorities or disenfranchised groups in corporations and organizations, how are organizations understanding and adapting to the life transitions in employees' lives? And I think certainly the situation we have now with COVID is bringing a lot of these transitions to you know, the awareness of, of managers and, and certainly senior executives who are having to adapt to working from home, being around their families more, dealing with unforeseen illnesses, uh, medical issues. So what do you think organizations could do to perhaps be more flexible when it comes to dealing with life transitions? Because that affects everybody. So, Anne-Marie, what do you think? What's your experience? What could they do to be more, more flexible? I, th- I think part of the issue is, and, and one of the things that I think kind of the working from home through COVID has helped with, is decision makers, senior people, being able to see the world through other people's eyes. So, you know, now they've, they've actually experienced uh, working perhaps with children around them or, you know, in kind of not really great conditions at home. You know, whereas previously they've had someone dealing with it or staff or whatever, mm-hmm. it's not really been a problem. It, it's, I almost see it like when I think it was um, uh, Sheryl Sandberg at, at Facebook, mm-hmm. pregnant, and she didn't really understand the issues about walking, you know, lots of, a long way to the to the office from the car park because she'd never kind of had, had, actually had to do it. So, 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 so I think kind of this this would be helpful. Um, I think. Sometimes it might be a bit controversial to say, but I think there also needs to be flexibility on on both sides. I mean, occasionally I've seen experiences where, you know, someone demands to work from home, demands to work certain hours because it, you know, because it suits them. And I think it, it does need to be a bit more of a partnership, I think, because, you know, it's, you know, 
at the end of the day, businesses are running businesses. So I think if if everyone's a bit kind of more kind of adult and cooperative about it, then absolutely what this last seven months have shown us is actually that flexibility absolutely can work. Alex, what's it like in the Middle East now? The COVID has been obviously a huge shift. It's, you know, it's pushed a lot of organizations here to think more about, um, you know, how they can, how they can adapt, how they can ensure that their employees are still contributing. You've got to remember that a lot of organizations here are very traditional in, in the way that they think. So you know, I've worked in organizations where you've literally had, when you've gone, you literally have to clock in and you clock out. That that hasn't happened, obviously, because it just hasn't, you know, we, we haven't had the, the opportunity of going into work. You know, we've had lockdowns, we've had to work from home. Um, there, there has been, like in many other parts of the world, there has been a, a more significant impact on women because the children have also been at home and and, and trying to balance work and teaching. It's, it's just, you know, for a lot of us, it's just too much. Um, my, my wife was for a long time a senior uh, Marcom's executive. You know, so we basically did the same thing. She's much better at what we do than, than I am. But um you know, she 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 took uh, leave from her work um, a couple back, and she's been doing consulting. And I think if we'd both been working senior roles, we'd have really struggled because we've got a five-year-old. You know, she was in the picture a while ago. She's just on the couch at the moment, doing whatever she's doing. But yeah, just, just trying to manage that is is incredibly difficult. So you know, the the best organisations have understood the challenges that everybody's going through, but particularly women in families, and they they've adapted you know so looking at flexible policies looking at you know flexible times flexible hours looking at really just making it easier for people to to give what they can do whilst also as well dealing with everything else which is going on around them it's we're, we're getting there i think is probably the the most diplomatic way of saying it but you know what i think frustrates me is many organizations you know my current one my previous one i used to work in fmcg they they all understand the importance of diversity and inclusion from the perspective as well of the business and that you're able to bring in more talented people, both men and women. You're able to give them the flexibility they need to have the lives outside of the workplace, which we all need. And it, it has um, an impact on the bottom line, on, on the business. But it's still not understood by the majority of organizations. So I still think that's one thing we struggle with. COVID-19 has has opened the eyes of some but we still have a lot of work to do in terms of ensuring that that diversity and inclusion is is there for everybody in every organization all right anna what's been your experience in all of this well i think the the question has been on about flexible you know and flexibility about life transitions and then we we focus on covid for for covid in particular I'd like us to make a, a difference between organizations versus comms, mm -hmm. because I think while organizations in a sense are learning to become more flexible and to accept that people, you know, might work in terms of schedules, right. Um, and in terms of place from, uh, from somewhere else, I don't think comms has been uh, the wonderful and great recipient of that. At least reports that I have from, uh, Eastern Europe, Central and Eastern Europe in particular, and and as well as from from people who are in uh, leading positions in, in multinational organizations. 
organizations is that COVID, for what's worse, uh, has has uh, worsened things for communicators. Uh, in a sense, um, one of the hurdles, and that has, in a sense, I think has goes beyond gender, goes to what the profession, how the profession is perceived. Cons was understood and seen as uh, a service, something that, you know, to be always on. So that has made for communicators' life incredibly difficult because, uh, you know, uh, what I say is that I haven't seen ever a job that has been considered to be so bullshit, right, bullshit jobs, mm -hmm. as public relations is, yet in so, so much demand as, as I've seen it during, uh, during COVID. And without any sort of recognition for for the work that they do, legislation was being changed, for instance, in, in, in Romania and organizations and therefore their communications departments had to be on for 48 hours because the government couldn't decide what they're doing. And nobody asked these people, do you need to go and take a break? Uh, is your kid see, sick? Um, is your mother or your father who's ailing and, and needs care? Are they being tended of? So going back to answer that question, I think for, for comms, there are a couple of things that need to be done. Uh, one is that if, if, yes, comms is needed and we can consider um, COVID as an, as an exception, as a crisis, then we need to come up and look around uh, you know, with, with our team and think of shared schedules, think of, in a sense, shared responsibilities and, and collaborative rotas. One of the other things that we need to think of is that we need to give people, and we have to enforce giving people time out. And, and so in a sense, if, if you're a comms manager of a team, you have a responsibility to yourself and to everybody else to make sure that they're sane. Um, and I don't mean this disrespectful, that, that they're you know, mentally fit and physically fit. And, and so well-being, particularly for communicators, has been something that, that came up as a hot topic, because you were asking about that at the mm -hmm. beginning, as a, as a hot topic in this context of COVID. So before we think about flexibility in terms of where do you work from and how do you work, I think we should think more about how do we achieve what we need um, mm -hmm. and how do we collaborate with others to get the job done? Because it doesn't necessarily have to be, I don't know, this is not the industrial, industrial Victorian era when you need to sit tight for eight hours in a place. But on the other hand, what the, the trap of, of this flexibility is that availability is taken for granted and they're not mm -hmm. the same thing. I'm not sure if I've answered exactly Suha's question. No, but, uh, I, but... I think you've all made some, some very good points. And it brings me to my sort of summary question uh, on today. Um, and we've had some interesting comments in, in the chat as well that this is, you know, larger than just uh, perhaps gender being a, a subcategory of diversity and inclusion. Um, Alex, you were mentioning reflecting the population, reflecting our stakeholders. And it's been pointed out here that women represent 51% of the population. But again, in our industries and, and our businesses, it's a different, you know, different mix for lots of the reasons that you've talked about. So to begin to, to bring this to a close very quickly, in bringing about change on some of these issues within our profession, what is our responsibility as professional communicators? And I'll just give you each about 30 seconds to respond. So Anne-Marie, 
Okay, so so two things for me. One is um, I now I'm kind of older and more senior. I'm I'm not shy about calling out behaviours, mm-hmm. um, not in a an unkind way, but in a kind of learning way, um, and also mentoring. So obviously, um, so you know, people coming up don't have to make the mistakes I did, as Michelle Obama said. You know, once you're up the ladder, it's my responsibility to turn back and help pull other people up. Okay, Alex. I think mentoring is is a big one um, to have more role models as well in the the industry who reflect the diversity inclusion that we want to see um, as communicators we are often the voice of the organization as well so you know we have an ability which no others have um, of giving people a share of voice and I think we've got to use that power much more to give um, those groups who need more representation who deserve it more voice and let them tell their stories and help them tell their stories as well. Okay. Anna. Oh, that, that, that's tough. Um, <laughs> I would think, <laughs> I would think our responsibility of communicators is to burst bubbles and, and in some cases burst the bubbles that we formed. Communicators in the sense, we, we see this rise of, 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 of the purpose narrative, both for organizations and professions. But purpose goes to values and values go to bubbles and bubbles uh, are dividing, right? They're comfortable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's this confirmation bias where it leads us. So, you know, while we create bubbles, I think our responsibility, our even bigger responsibility is to burst them. Because if we perpetuate bubbles and that, cre- uh, you know, goes back to gender and as well to Claudia's uh, argument we're not getting to that different place that we wish for ourselves to be. Okay, that pretty much brings us to a close for today for our discussion. Uh, I'm sure this could continue for much longer. Uh, We haven't been able to answer all the questions from the audience, but we will keep them and see if we can address some of these issues in the future. So if you'd like to know more about IABC and the Amina region, please visit IABC.com. And you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And lastly, I would like to thank our panelists, Anne-Marie Blake, Alex Malouf, and Dr. Anna Adi for taking uh, time out of their schedules to be with us today to uh, have this very interesting discussion. I would also like to thank some uh, students from the, if I can get my note here, from uh, Leeds University Business School who have helped put this event together and helped with our uh, social media activity, Haida, Koa, and Mahika. So we really appreciate the support we've had there. Lastly, again, uh, to our panelists for sharing their experiences and their insights. I've made notes about Pi, so I'm going to be using that, Anne-Marie. Uh, the conversation about inclusion is continuing on Twitter at hashtag IABC underscore inclusion. So we would uh, love to hear from you, love for you to join us in a further discussion, and we'll look forward to seeing you at our next event in the new year. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs>